Hi, this is Chris Castle, and you're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast with Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchert. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Chris Castle, Universal deflates the TikTok hype. Does TikTok have a Napster problem? And from Billboard, overnight success is very rare in music, and there's data to prove it. And from Music Business Worldwide, Robert Kinsel is confident that Universal and TikTok will resolve their spat. And three other things we learn on WMG's latest earnings call. Oh my goodness, so much going on, Jay, so much going on. In fact, there's so much going on, we better start the show right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Now, yesterday and today, our theater's been jammed with newspapermen and hundreds of photographers from all over the nation, and these veterans agree with me that the city never has witnessed the excitement stirred by these youngsters from Liverpool who call themselves the Beatles. Now tonight, you're going to twice be entertained by them. Right now and again in the second half of our show. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! Well, Jay, what a bomb drop it was when that Ed Sullivan show hit yeah. 60 years ago. I can't believe 60 that. 60 years ago. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I well, mean, and, and we, we talked extensively before the show, before we hit record. Um, but when you look at just socially and how the business changed, how it just it lit so many fires that uh, it's just you can't really overstate the importance of no. the Beatles coming to America. No, you can't. And, and yeah, 60 years ago, it really changed popular music. But here's the thing. It really influenced a whole generation of musicians, singer-songwriters. Uh, how many times have you heard very influential singer-songwriters, musicians talk about, hey, what, what started it for me? I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. That's right. And you and I had also mentioned when we were uh, just before the show that, um, you, you know, we both went back and rewatched that Ed show and yeah. the, first, the first one. And, you know, they came out swinging. They had such a confidence and they were just they were fearless when they yeah. came out. And it was and it showed, you know, they just looked so comfortable, so charismatic. And you can you know, you can see how it just it just must have just gobsmacked so many young kids yeah uh, 
and yeah. they ran out and bought those records. Yeah, changed everything. Um, I think we might have mentioned this last week, but I just finished that book, um, Living the Beatles Legend, The Untold Story yeah. of Mal Evans. Boy, that was that was such a great book. I, I think you and I were talking about our favorite Beatle books um, not long ago, and we both sort of agreed that one of the very, very best books is just called The Beatles, and it's by author mm-hmm. Bob Spitz. So if you ever want to sort of dig into that uh, Beatle history, man, it is really good. Well, and then, I, and I'm a big fan of the Mark Lewison book, all the all those years, and. Um, yeah, there's just, there's so many great Beatles books out and you and I have read most of them, if not all of them. Yeah. Uh, and then for us, uh, it's worth mentioning as we have a number of times on the show that, uh, when you and I first met, that was one of the things that I was knocked out by, which is you had, remember, you remember the newsletter ice that yeah, talked, it was very all about so, CDs sure. and, and they always had a section on bootlegs that were out there floating around. And I was blown away because you, I was talking about them and you said, Oh, I've got that. Yeah. Oh, I've got that. Oh, I've got that. Yeah. I'm like, this is a guy I need to hang out with. <laughs> I've got a, a handful of friends that are just huge Beatle fanatics. You know, Liz Hayes, Gail George, you know, Richard Glasband, Keith Putney. There's a bunch of us that just sort of, you know, we talk about the Beatles. And uh, we collected those outtakes, B-sides, live recordings. Yeah, it's just it's just been a joy. Um, before we jump into the stories this week, there was sort of a late-breaking story because this is Super Bowl weekend, and we're recording this prior to the Super Bowl, so we don't know who's going to win. But when this uh, goes out live, uh, the Super Bowl will be over. But there's something really interesting about the music and the commercials every year yeah. in the Super Bowl. And Steve Knopper over at Billboard wrote this amazing story Um the headline was Super Bowl Sync Report. Universal Music Publishing Group scores a leading 18 ads. And as you probably know, Super Bowl ads are one of the most lucrative showcases for publishers, nearly $1.5 billion every year. According to Sync sources, 2024 fees have ranged anywhere from $150,000 to a $1 million. That's for one Yikes. sync. Yeah, so Universal Music Publishing, whose catalog includes the OJ's Love Train, used in Akura's Light Spot, and Perry Como's Round and Round for Lint Chocolate. By the way, that is one of my kryptonite items, the mm, Lint Chocolate little yeah. balls. Yeah. Uh, it has 18 sinks uh, during this year's Super Bowl. Sony landed 14, and Warner Chapel Music had 12, including Express Yourself, while BMG had 5, Cobalt 4, Reservoir 3, and Hypnosis 2. Uh, Billboard tallies in-game national ads that appeared during the CBS broadcast. Yeah, at the end of the uh, new BMW commercial, uh, Christopher Walken sits down to dine in this restaurant and he finds Usher at the table next to him. Uh, Those two and a waiter wind up saying yeah to each other a few times. And for this, just for saying yeah, publishers for each of the six songwriters on Usher's 2004 smash, yeah, they got to split a huge sync placement. Even though not another word or any melody from the song is performed during the one minute spot, BMW wouldn't have had to pay the fee if they used random actors uh, just to say yeah in the ad. But because Usher's in it, they did the right thing. So uh, a great band from from this area, Charles Wright and the Watts, 103rd Street Rhythm Band's 1970 soul classic, Express Yourself, which plays throughout the BMW spot, is one of many big, easily recognizable tracks used in the Super Bowl advertisements this year. Dove Soap licensed uh, It's the Hard Knock Life 
from the Annie soundtrack. Budweiser uh, brought back its Clydesdales for a spot containing the band's The Weight. One of my all-time favorite songs. Uh, Volkswagen celebrated its 75th anniversary in the U.S., set to Neil Diamond's I Am, I Said. Mm -hmm. And a Popeye's ad includes, uh, this was a tough one (laughs) to pronounce, actually. It's uh, also Sprocked Zarathustra. Uh, and DJ Snake and Lil John's turn down for what? By the way, I try not to see these ads before the Super Bowl airs. Exactly. But I did see yeah. that Volkswagen commercial, and it, it's about their 75-year history, as you said, set to Neil Diamond's I Am, I Said. One of the best commercials I've ever seen. It was just, it's theatrical. It's cinematic. It's amazing. The majority of the songs used um, this year were catalog songs, according to Tom Eaton, who's a senior VP of music. Uh, for advertising for Universal Music Publishing Group. That represents the band and Neil Diamond catalogs. They create immediate impact. So it's just another area. We talk about how a majority of the business uh, these days not only is streaming, but it's catalog streaming over 18 months old. And uh, for these commercials, they used a lot of catalog tracks. Well, and by the way, when you talk about some of these specific catalog tracks we mentioned, I mean, this is going back in some cases... 50 years you know these are songs that have been out for a very long time and are so ingrained in the public consciousness um it's remarkable really that because you know you you couldn't if let's say you're you're talking about when the beatles hit a song from 50 years prior to that would have been something written in the early 1900s never would anybody have cared (laughs) about that music but you know this music still resonates and it's aggressively worked yeah. by companies. Yeah, it just works. You're right. Um, uh, quick little note, we dropped that special bonus episode uh, with Will Page last week <clears throat> where we he breaks do. down SoundCloud Rockonomics, getting a lot of great uh, feedback um, from that. So if you haven't listened to that one, don't miss it. It's one of our uh, favorite people to have on the podcast, and uh, he never disappoints, does he? No, he does not, and he is so fun to chat with, and the the time goes by so quickly uh, whenever we're conversing with him, and we always usually have another conversation prior to even hitting the record button, so uh, it is always fun, and we certainly appreciate him giving us a little time out of his day, which is like nine hours ahead of us. Yeah, fun conversation. Yeah, we we really appreciate it. Um, We've been talking a lot about um, streaming fraud lately. Mm-hmm. It's, it's such a hot topic. A couple of weeks ago, you and I spoke with uh, Morgan Hayduck from BeatDap, you know, um, one of the leading uh, platforms to combat streaming fraud. Um, so this week, I sat down with Symphonic Distribution founder and CEO, Jorge Brea, uh, about the problem and what's being done to fight it. And uh, we had an interesting conversation. So without further ado, this is uh, my conversation with Jorge Brea uh, talking about streaming fraud. Jorge, great to see you. How you doing? Good, my friend. Good to see you as well. So it's been estimated that across the digital music industry, various forms of fraud, misrepresentation, they account for hundreds of millions of dollars in lost revenue to real artists each year. How is Symphonic combating streaming abuse like bots, spin farms, and imposters? Yeah, so I think, you know, you kind of hit it right here. It's, it's expanded, and I think that fraud has gone even beyond artificial streaming. Um, you know, copyright infringement is still quite rampant. You know, with more individuals that are becoming creators and, and using creative methods to make music, um, there's a lot of folks that do it badly, right? So they make music that can claim videos and things like that on YouTube and other UGC platforms. And you mentioned, obviously, the bot farms and things like that. So 
for Symphonic, you know, first we're very focused on working very closely, you know, with our partners and colleagues in the Music Fights Fraud Alliance. You know, a lot of what we do involves reviewing data that is provided by the DSPs, uh, reviewing our own, you know, streaming consumption, and putting in protections at the content approval level, such as digital audio fingerprinting, providing education to our clients that either are affected and or are not affected to sort of get ahead of it. Um, and for sure, investigating uh, accounts based on their consumption patterns. So I will actually be very blunt that uh, we are pretty aggressive against egregious and obvious fraud that we see. Um, and that will mean, you know, harsh action with us um, because we want to protect our rights holders. And, yeah. You know, we want everybody to to uh, to know that that's like our main goal. And even if fraudsters are listening to this because they might be creative and actually listen to these podcasts and read these interviews, it's like if you are committing fraud on our platform, like we're going to know it because there's certain times that it's quite obvious, actually. And then there's the creative methods that become more challenging. So um, we've done a lot around KYC or know your customer. That's been really helpful. And I'll talk more about that probably in a little bit. Uh, but we've also partnered with Topalti for payments and tax compliance, all these different sort of tools that are out there that we can use that can kind of create friction is I think a really helpful thing. Um, and all, all very much beefed up our legal trust and safety and even more headcount to to kind of combat the problem, I would say. That's great to hear. And you just touched on it, but I'd love to, you know, talk a little bit more about Symphonic's technologies and tools. You know, you you just announced this uh, partnership with this uh, identity verification company. I think it's Identify. Um, right. And you offer your artists and, and rights holders these tools. Talk a little bit about those. Yeah, for sure. So a little bit of background, you know, in late 2002, or tw sorry, late 2022, we launched a new subscription product that was really aimed at, you know, competing with the other DIYs, $99 a year for 100% of royalties if you're kind of just getting started in the music industry. And what we really noticed is that with an open platform where anybody could sign up, after getting so much demand for people wanting to sign up, we just noticed an influx of fraud. Um, and we just saw a lot of strange registrations, and it really took a little bit of processing to see where it was coming from and kind of for us to understand it a little bit. but. We, we saw that scammers are incredibly creative, right? So like you might think that just looking at IPs is one, one way of kind of identifying this, but IPs in my view are very easy to be tampered with. And we started seeing that fraud was creating multiple accounts and, and things of that nature. So just kind of a slew of different things at the registration level. So we came to the conclusion that we really needed to better know who we were working with if we were gonna have an open uh, platform. And that's why we um, hooked up with a company called Identify, as you mentioned, and essentially, uh, when you register with us, if you're kind of signing up through our DIY product, you're going to have to provide an ID or passport, um, for example, in order to then upload a song. And while that seems kind of like scary and weird, our thought is, you know, if you're a legitimate artist, you're not going to have an issue with providing an identification, you know, in order to work uh, with us, for example. And we thought it was going to create some friction, but actually it's interesting. It's created more registrations because people are liking that we actually have secure methods. And you've already noticed fraud has incredibly decreased because the fraudsters are realizing that certainly this is something that we will have on file through Identify um, in order to then go after them, which is part of our goal. So what else can be done in this area of trust and safety in this uh, new music business? Yeah, I think trust and safety is now the, the term that every distributor is going to, to, to use uh, for sure. Um, so first, you know, speaking of every other distributor, I'm very, very happy and proud to be a part of the Music Fights Fraud Alliance. You know, Symphonic is working along our competitors that are all, you know, sitting at the same table with the same goal and objective, which is to eradicate and, and you know, decrease fraud, which is awesome to see that we can all sort of 
kind of like discuss things that can be sensitive and difficult for the the greater goal, I would say. Um, so I would say, you know, if, particularly if you're an RC where you're dealing with scale and a lot of clients, I do think tools such as identity verification at whatever part of your, your funnel, I think are important. Um, maybe it's a type of thing where it gets rolled out for a certain, you know, uh, sector of your client base or maybe for new clients to sort of test it out. I just think in general, I, I found it kind of crazy in a, while, in a way to know that it's like anyone can just go on a website and actually upload a copyrighted asset and not sort of identify who they are. And it's like when you think about that, it's kind of wild. So I think companies putting that in place, whether it's at a payment level or wherever it makes the best sense for their business, I think is really, really helpful. And I really think education is is definitely big. I mean, there's still a lot of artists, unfortunately, that see a lot of things online in terms of, I will market your music for X streams, you know, kind of educating artists around why that's not good um, is a really good idea because artists, unfortunately, um, do, do get scammed unintentionally. And then lastly, um, I think it's even, even these platforms that are kind of catering to playlisters and things like that, I think they will need to <clears throat> also kind of focus on trust and safety and make sure that they are doing their part to vet those playlisters as well. So it's a collective effort. Those are just a few things right there, but um, those, you know, those things can make an impact over time, I would say. Yeah. Thanks so much for shining a light on this. Keep up the great work. Um, and let's, uh, let's talk again soon. Awesome. Thank you for what you do. We appreciate it. We love it. All right. Thanks, Rory. Awesome, man. Well, that is really interesting. Really fascinating. Yeah. And, you know, we talk so much about this sort of whack-a-mole thing. It's something that it's, there, there's nothing set and forget about this. No. This is something you are always on your guard and always, you have to be innovating and being creative. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of work that these folks are putting into it. Yeah. You mentioned whack-a-mole and I hear that a lot. But it's encouraging to know that Jorge and his uh, wonderful team over at Symphonic, that they're coming up with their own solutions and their own tools yeah. um, to detect what streaming fraud is. Because the fraudsters, they're savvy and uh, they're trying to uh, find these workarounds. Um, but it's nice to know we've got somebody... Uh, on our side. Um, and the last thing I want to mention before we jump into these amazing stories this week is there's a conference that I hadn't attended before and I started hearing about it. My friend JJ told me about it, I think originally, um, and it's called Measure of Music. Um, so the fourth annual um, Measure of Music conference, it's coming up February 23rd through the 25th. This is sort of a, an online event and it's supported by some of our favorite companies like BandLab, you know, Chartmetric, Jump Global, MLC, 1RPM, The Orchard, and Songkick. The conference was uh, founded by uh, Christine Osazawa. And Christine, I had a chance to talk to her this week. She's a force of nature. Um, so uh, li listen to this conversation with Christine. Christine, uh, so nice to meet you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So I'm pretty excited about this Measure of Music conference. It's your fourth annual and uh, sort of almost virtual completely. Tell, tell our audience a little bit about what you've built over at Measure of Music. 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, Measured Music is a music tech and data conference slash hackathon slash workshop um, that happens annually in the uh, last weekend-ish of February. Um, year four is coming up soon. Really excited about it. Um, but basically the entire program, the entire concept is talking with people about how data and insights is infused into the music industry at every single level of the industry. So rather than conversations around, let's say, data science, for example, is a conversation about how the marketing team looks at insights and data to make their decisions. It's a conversation about how entrepreneurs or startup founders look at data to make decisions about how to run their company, how to get funding, how to meet the right people. Um, it's like a conversation about like how the music industry actually works, um, not how people think the music industry works. Um, so it's really exciting for me um, to be doing this for the fourth year. We've had 5,000 plus people um, participate over the course of the last three years, um, and we're approaching uh, 2,000 people again for this coming year. Fantastic. Oh, and the hackathon part. Yeah, please. Let's mention the hackathon yeah. part, of course. Um, and so, yeah, like I said, there's a conference part. So there's panels, keynotes, and all of these, um, everything you expect right. from the conference. Um, but our kind of like our crown jewel of the conference itself is the hackathon. Um, so I started it by not even calling it a hackathon the first year. I think I just called it a project because I didn't want to intimidate people. But really, um, throughout the course of the three-day weekend where everyone's working on, where everyone's watching the conference, there is a group of about 100-ish people that are frantically working behind the scenes to put together a music data-related project that they have to uh, present to a panel of music and tech industry like senior executives um, at the last day of the conference basically they don't have a huge brief like or like any like detailed thing you must do but it must include music it must include data and our winning teams have come up with such cool things like i've seen projects around um, the rises of different genres, projects around specific artists. I've seen projects that, that are app-driven. Um, last year's winner did a collaboration app that helped people identify artists that should collaborate with one another. Everyone comes with really incredibly creative ideas with basically 48 hours to work on them. Wow. Christine, you are a force of nature. Um, I'm pretty excited about this uh, Measure Music Conference, and uh, let's, uh, let's talk again soon. Yes. Thank you for having me, Jay. Wow. You, force of nature indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah. Really cool uh, conference. I'm surprised we hadn't heard about uh, that one before, but uh, I'm looking forward to uh, checking it out. Yes. Well, before we jump into the stories, Jay, let's uh, do a big shout out to uh, our sponsors. Certainly appreciate all of their participation, including our friends over at Banzoogle. For over 20 years, Banzoogle has made it easy to build a stunning website and online store for your music. Now they've added a brand new EPK plan so that musicians can create a professional single page electronic press kit in minutes. All the features you need to design an EPK are already built in, including fully customizable templates, preset EPK page layouts, music players, images, text bio, and video embeds, a gig calendar and press quotes, and access to Banzoogle's award-winning support team seven days a week. The new EPK plan starts at just $6.95 per month, and your morning coffee podcast listeners can jump over to Banzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days. Then use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEEPK, all one word, to get 10% off the first year of the new EPK plan subscription. That's Banzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEEPK when you sign up to the EPK plan. Yeah, it's only $6.95 a month. Uh, we highly encourage you to check it out. We're also brought to you by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, 
and monetized, edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. Hypebot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. You betcha. Over 80 million live music fans trust Pans in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist service platform connecting over 590,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Yeah, and a special thank you to the Music Business Association. The Music Biz Conference creates the rooms in which important conversations that shape the future of the industry take place. Representing more than 90% of the industry at large, the association serves as the connective tissue for the global music business and provides a trusted forum where ideas and collaborations can flourish. Join us for the Music Biz 2024 conference, May 13th through the 16th in Nashville. We'll see you there. Indeed. Big thanks to Banzugo, Hypebot, Bands in Town, and the Music Business Association. And people always ask me, what is that Jay Gilbert guy all about? What's his background? <laughs> yeah. Certainly he's a handsome guy. But how about this? He is the music industry consultant. He is the, cre- the curator of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with little teeny startups like Universal Music, Sony Music, and Warner Music Groups. And as I said, just a handsome guy. Oh, thank you so much. Checks in the mail. And my, uh, my adorable co-host over here is Mike Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Group. And he's also a left-handed uh, guitar player, bass player, just like Paul McCartney. <laughs> Without the talent. (laughs) All right, well, let's jump into the first story. It's from our friend Chris Castle. Universal deflates the TikTok hype. Does TikTok have a Napster problem? Oh, my goodness. We we have a lot of great conversations with Chris Castle uh, on the air and off the air. Um, We consider him a friend of the podcast and just an overall smart guy. Um, he wrote this article and he says that when Universal withdrew from TikTok, the social media company was suddenly thrown back to its pirate site roots, at least for the Universal catalog of all sound recordings and, and many, many songs. So the eponymous TikTok is now on the clock to take down or mute Universal's entire catalog. So TikTok, baby. Universal head Lucian Grange made the case for the company's approach to terminating its TikTok license because his negotiators were unable to reach a meeting of the minds with the other side. It's pretty simple, really. This is not a big deal. It happens every day because in a free market capitalist system, fair is where we end up which means you had to have your end end up somewhere, including nowhere. Yeah, he goes on to say, let's not forget that TikTok does not have some statutory or other legal theoretical right to use Universal's recordings or songs. Their rights come from one place, their contract with Universal. No universal contract, no universal content. Sorry, copyright infringer apologist. This professorate, <laughs> whatever, I can't even pronounce that word. But uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> contracts have a duration, and when contracts end, you negotiate an extension. If you can't get an extension or a new agreement, remember, the clock is ticking and time is running out. Fair is where we end up. 
So one place to end up is nowhere. Stuff happens. Contracts frequently address what happens when the contract is over, and the relationship must be unwound, sometimes called post-termination conditions, which are just as much of a promise as anything else in the contract, even if the duration or the term of the agreement is over. Professoriate. I just don't use that word. He says, no, we don't. sorry, copyright infringer apologist in the professoriate, professoriate. See, now I've got a new one. It's kind of like remunerate. It's just one of those That's new, right. new words in, in our vocabulary. So um, I had a chance to talk to Chris um, again, and it's always an interesting and educational conversation. And we talk about TikTok and Universal among other things. So let's listen in on this really cool conversation uh, with Chris Castle. Chris, always good to see you. Thanks for joining me today. Great. Thank you very much, Jay. I appreciate it. Good to see you. So there was an open letter this last week, as you know, from Sir Lucian Grange, UMG. It was uh, why we must call out on TikTok. And they point out three critical issues, appropriate compensation for artists, and songwriters, um, protecting human artists from harmful effects of AI and online safety for TikTok users. What sort of went through your head when you read that? Well, I think the first thing that um, I got from that letter is that um, the compensation apparently was going backwards. In other words, TikTok was offering less, right? Now, just remember, TikTok started out really as a pirate site. Um, there were there were no clearances. There were no anything. It was a seek forgiveness situation, right? And what ended up happening was um, artists were starting to put their videos up there. Fans then were starting to put videos up there. Uh, the original thing was they could have two hundred records or two hundred recordings, I think, or some limited number of recordings, less than a thousand. And that went through the window in about five minutes, you know. And so um, they ended up doing these deals. And of course, TikTok was not built uh, originally, as most of these sites are not, uh, with the idea of tracking music and paying royalties, right? Because they had no intention of paying royalties. <laughs> uh, so that makes it easy, you know. I mean, you know, there's a whole lot of savings right there. But um, so when they start doing these licenses, it became apparent that they weren't going to be able to really track. So they came up with this, what they call the blind check license, which is basically you write a check, um, you come up with a number, uh, which varies uh, directly with the amount of blindness. Um, and, um, and then, and then they'll send you some kind of reporting and, you try to allocate it in some way and it's all very loosey-goosey, right? Um, now, the way you look at that is another way to interpret that is that it's a what they call a covenant or an agreement not to sue, right? In other words, if, if, I, if you come to me and say, I'm doing all this with your stuff and I can't really track it and I don't, but I, I don't want you to sue me. I want, I want you to, I want to compensate you in some way. You say, okay, well, I'm not calling this a license, so don't go around telling people you have a license. I'm just agreeing not to sue you right now. <laughs> that may change. <laughs> so um, you know, it's kind of all of these things. So when when you're when you're confronted with this, 
the expectation is as the site grows, you'll get more money. And there's, you know, um, someone in Universal's position has to kind of be a bit careful since they're the biggest company and others. Antitrust implications every time you turn around, if you breathe wrong, all of a sudden you've got problems. Yeah. Because you breathe, you breathe too hard. Um, but they, their argument is that TikTok is out of line with competitors, right? With other similarly situated people. And they're definitely they were out of line to begin with. And now they're definitely out of line because they're going backwards and nobody's going to go backwards. So, you know, the, the answer is we pull our stuff. On the AI piece, um, TikTok is in an ideal position to train AI. I mean, because AI requires vast amount of data and TikTok has vast amount of data. And they also have, um, you know, vast amount of copyrighted material on the site, which could provide a backdoor to somebody who was trying to train AI, right? Uh, and as Elon Musk uh, said in the, the New York Times deal book interview, which the famous part is where he told Bob Iger to go pound sand, so to speak. Um, but the other part that was more interesting to me was where he was asked straight up, you know, does AI, the AI companies tell us that they don't use copyrighted material. Is that true? And he said, outrageous lie. <laughs> I mean, didn't miss a beat, you know, just yeah. you're lying, right? And His so, honesty is refreshing. Yes, it is. Well, and if there's anybody who should know, it would be him, right? Because of his history. Yeah. Um, so I think that might be part of it. Because uh, the last thing in the world you want is some vocal cloning version of Drake going and competing with Drake, right? Particularly because they, I'm sure they don't plan on paying royalties. Because that's the other thing to remember. If they consult their site with AI versions of, of recordings, they will treat those as not copyrightable, which is sort of true. But um, they will then not pay royalties on those, right? Uh, although with TikTok, because they don't really have the kind of control over the system that um, you would need if you wanted to exclude things precisely, um, the pre precision has never been their long suit over there when it comes to paying money. Uh, so, um, you know, that remains to be seen how that would actually get implemented, but you get the idea. It's like, there's just a lot of loose ends that are kind of, and they, you know, they wanted clarity, which they weren't getting. This is all, I mean, at the end of the day, this is all about the negotiation falling out. Right. Yeah. Um, right. They're there. If you've ever seen Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, there's a, a great scene where Blake, the character Blake, which was played by Alec Baldwin in the movie, uh, says, always be closing, right? A, B, C, yes. D. Always, yeah. A, always, B, B, C, closing, right? And I think I so, saw that on one of your newsletters. Yeah, I like that. that I'm, I, I must <laughs> say, I'm, I, yeah, I'm very partial to David Mamet, anyway, who wrote that yeah. script. But yeah. um, in any event, the, um, yeah, they couldn't close. So I and so this some of this is kind of only really visible in detail if you're in there, you know, uh, in the actual negotiation. But I assume that whatever the AI result was, it wasn't uh, sufficient um, for Universal's purposes. And remember, Universal is a big part of that human artistry campaign 
on AI, right? So if you wanted yeah. to know the kinds of things that they were concerned about, you could probably just look at the AI uh, principles in the human artistry campaign. Yeah, which are, yeah, that makes sense. Know, frankly, garden variety things that sort of any decent human being would expect. <laughs> oh, there you um, go. I don't really think there's anything controversial there. Yeah. Um, and then the final thing about protection, I think that what they're worried about there kind of came out in the in the um, social media hearings at the Senate, which were, by the way, the next day, <laughs> just for context, the day after Lucian released that letter, they were having this hearing at which uh, TikTok was testifying, you know, in, yeah. um, at the at the Senate Judiciary Committee, which did not go well for them, right? Uh, actually, it didn't go well for any of them, uh, but particularly not, or not, not, I think mean, Mr. TikTok and Zuckerberg probably caught the worst of it um, yeah. at that hearing. So in any event, they're, you know, they're worried about, um, protecting children they're worried about um fakes they're worried about um you know pornographic um fakes of their artists you know um you know lots of things and, yeah. and you know really with any of these platforms like tiktok for for some people tiktok kind of becomes the internet uh for them because they're on it so long and that's really their world right so um, who knows what's on that system, right? Yeah. So I think these were all his concerns. They, they just didn't get satisfactory answers. Yeah. So you wrote a piece, uh, I just read it today, really good. Mm -hmm. And it, it opened my eyes to a couple of things that I just wouldn't have thought of. Uh, this piece was in Music Tech Solutions. And mm -hmm. one of the things you wrote was, uh, I've never understood why the public messaging when tracks are taken down for whatever reason is not a material deal point in any license. And I, it just blew my mind. So talk about that a little bit. Well, if you remember when uh, content ID was getting started on YouTube, um, YouTube, you know, being the um, personality types that they are when they, they resent having to take anything down, right? So when they took it down, they would put this little downward smiley face, you know, on there with out of their little logo saying uh, this was taken down because of, uh, you know, Universal Music Group or whoever it might be, you know. And um, the implication is go after them. Not us. <laughs> go talk bad about them, right? And, and, you know, when you look at that, you think, Man, you know, that's kind of immature. I mean, wh why are they doing that? You know, uh, and it is damaging to the label's brand or the publisher's brand and also to the artist. You know, I mean, it's the artist fan. They wouldn't have people looking for the music on there if somebody hadn't invested in, in, in developing that artist, including the artist. Right. Um, and so... Why, why should they be able to do that? And when you're going to take things down, particularly if you're going to take a catalog down, right? Um, I think it, it behooves you to include in the termination provisions, which is when you'd be taking it down, um, some agreed upon control. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't allow somebody to just issue a press release unilaterally, right? right. Um, about you. Right. And you would you would want mutual approval, at least. 
So why wouldn't you do that? It's just another form of messaging to the public. So why wouldn't you want to have mutual approval? Over it that? makes perfect sense, but there you go, you know, using logic, you know, again, um, <laughs> you in that same piece. Well, oh, go ahead. Just to add to that. Yeah. The, the other thing, the other thing about that is if you're going to take it down, in other words, if the catalog is no longer going to be on that site, um, in addition to just being able to approve the messaging, you ought to be able to send the user to someplace else because the implication is, you know, it's just not available, right, at all. That's not true. It's not available on TikTok, <laughs> right, and for a good reason, right? So, you know, why shouldn't you be able to send them to some page somewhere? There's a there's a there's a website called Why Music Matters that has basically a list of all the licensed sites in the world, you know, or at least in the U.S. And um, you know, something like that. Obviously, excluding the one that you know you're leaving, but um, you know, that to me would be a good thing to do, and is a better fan experience. And frankly, even for TikTok, it's a better customer experience. It's like, oh, sorry, you know, we we're couldn't make a deal with these guys and they went on their way godspeed you know by condios see around campus you know but the um you know and then that's it yeah when the way it works now yeah that seems reasonable right. so it, wouldn't it be better yeah. if you said and you if you, you're a fan you can go over here yeah right and in the same piece you wrote you know if you want to explain why a track is no longer available, explain it. Don't make it more confusing. Is that sort of what you mean? Yeah, because what you do, and I think what they're doing when they when they put up these sort of um, negative uh, referrals or negative uh, statements, like you know this track was taken down because of um, a company, um, it's confusing, right? Because it's if it was taken down by a company, it sounds like someone's going to think, and many people do think, that somehow it's unfair, somehow it's uh, aggressive, some it, it, all kinds of, of things which are not the case. I mean, they, they took it down because they have a right to take it down. Believe me, Google wouldn't take down a thing that they didn't have to, right? So why do you have to put this negative spin on it and confuse people? You know, so I, I think there's a consumer confusion issue there too, which is uh, outside of the contract, right? I mean, that's a, that's a Lanham, what they call a Lanham Act, uh, potentially a Lanham Act claim or a state law um, consumer protection claim, which is a bit attenuated. I mean, I th I'm not saying that would be a winner, or worth the time to sue on, but it, it, it's a fact, you know, I think it is confusing to people. Yeah. Thanks for coming on and helping us wrap our heads around this, uh, this issue. It, it's been, uh, enlightening and I, I can't wait for our next uh, conversation. Thanks, Chris. Sure. Thank you. Yep. Well, that was cool. And again, you know, we are so lucky to have people that we can reach out to, to really break a lot of these things down. Chris Castle is a music industry attorney based in lovely Austin, Texas. He divides his practice between music industry clients, music tech startups, and public policy matters relating to copyright and artist rights. And he also writes for one of our favorite music industry blogs, Music Technology Policy. Yeah, we, we roll a lot of stories in your morning coffee from Music Technology Policy. Um, we reach out to Chris uh, often, 
And uh, we need to have him do more of a, a long-form conversation here soon. Um, it's do. been It's been too long, but thank you, Chris, for uh, speaking with me this week. Uh, we really appreciate you uh, shining some light on that. Yeah, let's uh, jump to our second story, Jay. It's uh, from Music Business Worldwide. Robert Kinsel is confident, in quotation marks, that Universal and TikTok will resolve their spat. And three other things we learned on uh, Warner Music Group's latest earning calls. This is from Daniel Tensor over at Music Business Worldwide. And it starts when it comes to the dispute between Universal Music Group and TikTok over royalty payments. The talk of the music industry over the past few weeks, of course. Warner Music Group CEO Robert Kinsel is offering, offering some cautionary advice. Whatever you read in the press, he says, don't believe it. <laughs> Kinsel noted that, you know, in his prior role as chief business officer at YouTube, he had himself experienced these types of rights holder versus platform conflicts. He says, so I know exactly what Lucian and show are feeling. Um, he was referring to UMG chairman, CEO, Sir Lucian Grange and TikTok CEO, Shozi Chu. Universal's recorded music catalog, and that's about 3 million tracks, by the way, it, and it's publishing, which is nearly 4 million songs, they've started to disappear from TikTok, right? We've been seeing it. After TikTok's licensing agreement with UMG expired January 31st, with no new agreement in place yet. Yet, the optimal word. Uh, as that deadline passed, the rhetoric between the short-form video social media platform and the world's largest music rights holder grew increasingly heated. Last week's earning call also arrived after Warner's announcement that it is laying off around 600 staff, or about 10% of its workforce, a move that Kinsel said on the earnings call is part of an efficiency drive that will save the company $200 million dollars by September of 2025, the majority of these layoffs will take place within uh, Warner Music Group's owned and operated media properties, some of which the company plans to sell. We're in an exclusive process for the potential sale of the news entertainment websites Uproxx and Hip Hop DX. With more to say on that soon, Kinsel told analysts on the call. Right. So this this piece broke down, you know, three things. Um, that he says that uh, he's learned from Warner Music Group's earnings call. So the first one, the savings from job reductions will be invested into music and automation of internal processes. Kinsel said that some of the savings would go into tech innovations, including AI-powered technologies. Yeah, he said it's really important that tech is supporting efficient growth of the company and introducing as much automation as possible into our systems and processes, both on the recorded side as well as on the publishing side. It also helps us monetize our entire catalog. As one example, Kinsel pointed to the thumbnails that go with tracks uploaded to music streaming services. Yeah, you don't think about that, but he said the freshness of these thumbnails or motion art, things of that nature, help streams, help revenue. And it's really difficult to do that manually across such a large volume of content. So we developed an AI tool that helps us update and create new ones. Uh, he said. So there's a lot of tricks uh, of this trade, and we can deploy the technology to help track revenue as well. 
Another thing learned on this, number two, is Spotify's new royalty payment model is, again in quotation marks, just the beginning. Over the past several months, we've seen some significant changes to the way certain streaming music services pay royalties, namely Deezer's shift to an artist-centric model under which professional artists, again in quotation marks, those who have a minimum of 1,000 streams per month and a minimum of 500 unique listeners receive a so-called double boost to royalty payments, as do artists whose tracks have been actively searched for by users. Right, I think that's key. Not long after that move, Spotify unveiled a new payment model under which a track will have to be played a minimum of a thousand times in a 12-month period in order to qualify for payments from Spotify's pool of royalty money. On Warner Music Group's earnings call, Kinsel called Spotify's move, quote, a step in the right direction, end quote, and that better aligns economics with the quality content that drives engagement. We view this just as the beginning, and we're continually engaged with our partners to drive faster revenue growth. So Kinsel, who has argued repeatedly over the past year that streamed music is undervalued, is also pushing for further price hikes at the DSPs, calling it one of our very large opportunities. He suggested that the time has come to focus not only subscriber growth, but on revenue growth as well. He said, the way I talk about it, we should not be only hunting, but we should also be harvesting. The industry obviously has focused on growth over the last 15 years, and now we just need to do both of those things and be much more intentional about that. Yeah, and then number three of three, the digital music era is making large music companies like Warner Music Group exponentially more relevant. So with the arrival of digital platforms, particularly ones open to everyone like YouTube and SoundCloud, digital audio workstations, the indie distribution services like DistroKid and SoundOn, it's becoming increasingly easy and practical for artists to quote unquote go DIY instead of hoping for a break at a major label, which of course begs the question, will large music companies even be relevant in the future? Well, not surprisingly, in Kinsel's view, not only will they be relevant, they will be more relevant than ever. He said, as the music business has grown larger, faster, noisier, and more complex, with democratized distribution creating a flood of content on platforms, the role of large music companies is growing exponentially more relevant, he said on this earnings call. Yeah, he also said it's, it's harder than ever for any one artist to break through the clutter, and that's true. And that's where we come in. We collect and process large volumes of data and make it usable and actionable, driving repeatable results, a task that is very difficult for any individual artist or small business because of the resources and skill sets it requires. He said, our global marketing footprint and expertise combined with deep technical capabilities to build systems and data insights enable us to differentiate ourselves in this regard. In fact, looking at the last quarter, songs from the major music label groups represented 94% of the songs on Billboard's Hot 100. That's a pretty convincing argument not to bet against a major companies, and it's a point that Kinsel has made in different ways before. Yeah. He goes on to say that music is incredibly broadly distributed and the complexity is high. And the more people can upload content and the more people can be heard, the greater the noise. Makes sense, right? So we, that means that it's harder to cut through the noise and sustain a career. If you're a music artist, you need a team 
You need an army behind you if you want a sustainable career with repeatable success. And uh, amazing story in music business worldwide. Um, and I think that uh, Robert Kinsel over there at Warner Music Group, um, he's saying some very smart things about how the business is and the importance of still having a major behind you. Let's do our last story, Jay. This is from Billboard. Overnight success is very rare in music, and there's data to prove it. And this is from our friend Glenn Peoples over there writing yet another groovy story and uh, very interesting stuff here. Yeah, I first saw this in his weekly newsletter that you and I absolutely love called The Ledger, and it linked to this full story. And it's really about a new report from data company Chartmetric. And it shows these long odds of going from undiscovered to mainstream uh, in a single leap. And I'll just kick it off. Glenn says that what's the best way to become a superstar? First, become a successful mainstream artist. That's one of the key takeaways from this inaugural annual report from music data company Chartmetric. Yeah, so of the roughly uh, 710,000 new artists added to Chartmetrics platform in 2023 that placed into one, one of six career stages, ranging from undiscovered to legendary, only a small fraction of a percent finished the year amongst the top 35,000 artists. Instead, most new artists, almost 88% of them, fell into the undiscovered category, while 12.3% of them reached developing just one category above. Yeah, and this speaks to something that we brought up a couple of weeks ago on the uh, annual Luminate report. And I think it bears repeating because this, this seems very close to what we were reading there. So for example, you know, there were 184 million ISRCs, tracks, uh, that were tracked by Luminate. And 86% of those, so very close to what they're talking about, so 152 million of those had 1,000 or fewer plays. And, and I know you and I talk about this quite a bit, nearly 46 million had zero plays. So that's 25% of that music. Yeah, that's that's creating. So chart metric uh, statistics throw cold water on the notion that social media and do-it-yourself distribution can help any artist reach the levels of success previously attainable only to artists on record labels. Those rare instances grab headlines and feed the narrative that technology has eroded traditional gatekeepers' powers and democratize access to audiences. And while it's true that artists like Armani White and Jixton rode TikTok fame to major record label deals, those success stories are outliers. They anonymity are. Or, yeah. Yeah, anon yeah. I was going to say anonymity or something close to it is the norm, unfortunately. Yeah, that, that is, that's so true. Um, unfortunately, there are all of these opportunities for new developing and middle-class artists. But as we pointed out in the last piece with Robert Kinsel, you know, it's something like 4%, you know, of uh, all of the success, you know, that's coming out there is through some of these indie channels. A majority mm -hmm. of what's coming out and having success is from the majors. And as they point out, that doesn't mean that you have to be through a major to achieve that success. It's just with the onslaught and the sheer volume of what's coming out today and the low barrier to entry, it, it's going to be a challenge, right? So the challenging math underpinning success in this music makes sense, according to Glenn. Um, getting heard is difficult when audiences live under a constant deluge of listening options. The massive amount of music 
released every day, more than 110,000 tracks on average every day in 2023, according to Luminate. Chartmetric added 17.2 million tracks to its database last year. 7.7 million were released last year, and that's 103, almost 104 million tracks overall in its system. Gosh, I mean, the numbers are just staggering when yeah. you think about it. And, and again, you know, the, the ex, I think one of the points he makes, which is really good, is that, you know, we, we certainly hear all of this in the media about these these occasional artists that just jump up and suddenly be, you become aware of them. That really, 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 really is not the norm at all. Right. Not at all. Right. And one of the things uh, that they miss here, Mike, that they're not really talking about, and uh, it's it's really about you may not go from zero to a hundred. In other words, you may not be that indie DIY person having that number one hit, but a lot of these, if not all of these really great, you know, DIY artists eventually become an indie recording artist or a major recording artist. So there's another path there as well. Right. Uh, Near the end, Glenn goes on to say, there is some economic mobility for less successful careers, but not much. About 12% of developing artists were able to rise to mid-level status. That's sort of uh, no, uh, like 12,000 uh, to 35,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, far fewer jumped all the way to the upper echelons. Just 0.25% of developing artists jumped to mid-level status and reached mainstream uh, or superstar status, the top 1,500 or so. So yeah. it's, it's really pretty rarefied air when you, when you start talking about you know, artists of that caliber. But it always like, has been, right? I mean, Always has This been, is yes. the music business, and it's got something like a 95% failure rate if you're just looking at ROI. I always say that music is who you are, not what you do. And some of these people have no choice and sometimes they have jobs and then they play music. Um, Some are fortunate enough today to make enough money from touring and merch and sync and maybe somewhat on uh, streaming to uh, support that. But the the last uh, sentence here sort of sums it up. Glenn says that this report doesn't dispel any notions that the odds are stacked against new artists hoping to break into the mainstream. Success is possible, but to your point, it's rare. So great piece by Glenn Peoples. Started off in the ledger, ended up on Billboard Pro. Um, Always uh, great stuff from Glenn. Indeed. And on that note, we're going to wrap up the episode. We want to thank everyone for listening. Jay and I do not take that for granted at all. We certainly appreciate it and we recognize that uh, you have a limited amount of time and the fact that you kind of invite us into your ears, we say a big thanks. And of course, our wonderful sponsors, Banzoogle, Hypebot, Bands in Town, and the Music Business Association. And by the way, if you enjoy the show, hey, please tell one friend. We certainly appreciate it. And with that, we're going to say thanks for listening, and we will be back next week on the Your Morning Coffee Podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.